Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, we have some special guests here this morning. It's good to see the Gwens here. Um, the Gwens have uh, been away from us for how long now? Over six years. So Tony used to be a ruling elder here, his wife Dorinda and Leah and Anna, their daughters. Some of you know them, some of you don't, but they were faithful servants of this church for uh, many years. And it's really great to have you guys with us today. Welcome. Uh, open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 of chapter 5. A lot of you know that I used to be a a court reporter, used to be a newspaper reporter uh, in my 20s for the Muncie Evening Press. So I spent a lot of time in the Delaware County Courthouse doing stories on the trials that took place there. Uh, And I think most of you know how criminal trials work. You have a a prosecuting attorney who is trying to prove the guilt of the accused. You have a defense attorney. The defense attorney is trying to prove the innocence of the accused. And um, we have uh, a jury, most often a jury, and the jury is listening to the evidence and uh, seeking to make a decision. And um, the jury makes that decision very often based on testimony that's given by witnesses. And so these attorneys will bring witnesses forth, and these witnesses will testify to what they know or what they've seen or what they've heard. And very often, the testimony of these witnesses can make or break a case, right? I mean, we all know how important testimony is. I mean, very often, when I would write these news stories, that would be the lead of my story. That would be the headline of the story, what a particular witness said, the testimony that the witness gave. In many cases, the testimony given by a witness can be the difference between a person either spending many years in jail or prison and that person going free. And in some cases, it can be the difference between life and death, where capital punishment might be be in view. A lot of this depends on testimony given by witnesses. Now, in our passage today, you're going to see that this word testimony, this kind of courtroom testimony, terminology is being borrowed by John to instruct us on who Jesus is. Um, Verses 6 through 12 uh, has the occurrence of the word testimony at least eight times. And so um, the testimony that John is talking about is testimony that's given about Jesus as the Son of God, and it is presented to you for your evaluation. It's presented to you so that you can hear this testimony and make a decision for yourself on whether Jesus is the Son of God. And I want to um, urge you to consider today that your response to what you hear about the testimony regarding the Son of God can also be the difference between life and death. I'm talking spiritual life and spiritual death. But... Um, Uh, The testimony that goes forth about the Son of God is the most important testimony that anyone will ever hear, and that's what John is talking to us about. 
uh, here in these passages, <clears throat> these verses. So let's stand for the reading of these verses, 6 through 12 in chapter 5. God willing, we will finish 1 John next week. Um, as we told you last week, um, we're going to have guest preachers here July 1, 8, and 15. I'm going to be going to China to teach there and then taking some time off after that. So um, things will be a little different here for the first three weeks of July. I would encourage you not to uh, look at this as an opportunity to check out of church for three weeks. Um, please be here. Uh, we've got Curtis McDaniel from uh, Reform University Fellowship at Purdue who will be here July 1st. Uh, Jamie McGregor, associate pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in Indianapolis on July 8th. And then Josh Hollowell, uh, our church planner at City Hope, will be here on July 15th. Um, but today, we're looking at 1 John 5, 6 through 12, and this is what it says. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, what John is telling us is that there is a testimony about the Son of God that is worth believing, and that's what we're going to consider here um, this morning. This is actually the most difficult passage in all of 1 John. 1 John has really been pretty simple. Maybe you've kind of noticed that with the repetition and very kind of cut and dry black and white language, but today we get to the most difficult passage in the book, maybe one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament actually, but first thing I want to show you is the authority of the testimony that John is talking about here. So let's begin looking here at verse 6 where John says, this is he who came by water and blood. So th this is the phrase or the passage that has given people some difficulty. There's been many different interpretations about what John means here by water and blood. There are some who say this is referring to the sacraments, the water referring to our baptism and the blood referring to uh, communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, but most dismiss that interpretation simply for the reason that John doesn't mention the body. Mentions the blood, but not the body. Nowhere else in the Bible is the Lord's Supper described as just the blood. No other church fathers or any other Christian leaders or authorities ever described the Lord's Supper with just a reference to the blood. So we don't think that's a very uh, appropriate interpretation. Another interpretation of this is that the water and the blood in verse 6 refer to the water and blood that came out of the side of Jesus in John 19.34 where he's hanging on the cross and he was just about um, 
to die, or I guess he had just died, I think, and then the soldier comes and thrusts a spear into his side, and it says out of his side came water and blood. And so some think that verse 6 is referring to that, but that doesn't seem to make much sense either because the water and the blood came out of Jesus. What this verse is talking about is how Jesus came to us. This is he who came by water and blood. So neither of those uh, interpretations, I think, is satisfactory. The better way, I think, to look at this and commonly held view is that the water refers not to our baptism but to Jesus' baptism. It refers to the official beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and that the blood then refers to the blood of Jesus shed on the, cl- on the cross, the culmination of his ministry. So, of course, Jesus was born as a baby. He was um, resurrected from the dead, and his ministry continues, but there's something significant about the water and the blood, the official beginning of his earthly ministry and the ultimate culmination of it in his death on the cross. So, John then goes on later here in verse 6, and he adds another element here. If you skip down kind of the end of verse 6, he says, the Spirit then is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And so we have now this new thing here, the Holy Spirit testifying in some way. And so, you know, it tends to get a little more confusing. How does this relate to water and blood? Well, it it helps sometimes to look at other portions of the scriptures to flesh out our understanding. If you go back to John 15, same John who wrote this, this is quoting Jesus. This is the gospel of John, not 1 John. But um, Jesus says this, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So there's Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit in terms of a witness, and that's what John is telling us here in verse 6. The spirit is the one who testifies as a witness. Now, how would that happen? I mean, there's internal testimony that the spirit brings to us. He testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We hear that in Romans. But there's also the Holy Spirit's work in bringing to the remembrance everything that Jesus had said to his apostles so that the apostles could then write that down on the pages of the New Testament for us, bearing witness to the words and work of Jesus. And I think that probably both of those are in mind here when John talks about the Spirit testifying. Now, John goes on here in verses 7 and 8, and so now he pulls the three of them together. We got the, the, the water, we got the blood, and we have the Spirit. And in verse 7, he brings them together and he says, these are three, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So John's now referring to these three testifiers, water, blood, and Spirit. Now, we can go back to the Gospels again, and we can pull out some other information there that I think sheds some light on what John might have in mind. This is Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3 tells us this, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So we got water and Spirit. And then behold, a voice from heaven said, or we might say testified about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here's the father then testifying about the spirit and the water 
all taking place in the act of baptism. And so in this way, John is telling us that we have three witnesses to the identity of Jesus, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, the blood, of course, comes later. We don't see a mention of the blood here. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, but we'll talk more about the blood of Jesus here in a little bit. So, um, here's where the authority comes from. It's in two ways, just kind of to try to pull all this together. In two ways, we can see how God's authority, his, his testimony is presented to us as authoritative. And one is in the number of those testifying. So, uh, notice in verse 7 what he says. These are three that testify. So, this is important to John, that there's not just one testifying, not just two, but there's actually three. And John probably has in mind what um, is said in the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19. This is regarding um, a, a criminal or trial situation where somebody is being accused and they're trying to figure out if he's innocent or guilty, and it says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so in the Old Testament law, we have um, God decreeing this way of maintaining um, or preventing someone from being falsely accused, falsely um, even executed for a, a crime. Two or three witnesses need to be there. And so what John is saying here in verse 7 is, we've got three witnesses. Three witnesses are present when it comes to this testimony about the Son of God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. You, you might remember in the book of Mark, when Jesus was on trial, do you remember that it says that there were a lot of people who were giving false testimony about him? There were a lot of people saying certain things about Jesus that was not true, but in Mark 14, 56, it goes on to say that the false testifiers there did not agree. That was the problem. They were falsely accusing Jesus, but they all had different stories. There was no agreement among what they were saying about Jesus. And so John makes it clear here, these are three that testify, and then in verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. They're all consistent. They're all together. They're all saying the very same thing about who Jesus is as the Son of God. So, that's one way we see the authority of God's testimony and the number of the testifying entities. The other thing is the identity of the one giving the testimony. So, as we look at this text, who is it who is really giving this testimony? Who is it who is speaking and declaring these things about the Son of God? Look at verse 9. John goes on and he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So what John is saying here is, if based on Deuteronomy 19, we will accept the testimony of three fallible sinful people, but we'll accept that as adequate testimony against a person, won't we accept that if it's God himself who is testifying about something? And in this case, the identity of the person of Jesus as the Son of God? There is no higher testimony that we can appeal to than the testimony of God. 
You know, in a court of law, you'll see it happen very often where a witness will put his or her hand on a Bible and will swear or promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And that's a way for the witness to appeal to some authority higher than himself or herself as a way of validating the testimony that the person's about to give. But in God's case, who is he going to appeal to? What's the higher authority that he's going to appeal to to validate his testimony? There is no higher authority. And, and that's what John is saying here. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. God is the Almighty. God is the creator, the sustainer of all things. God is the spirit of truth, as we heard here just a moment ago. There is no one outside of God to whom we can look to validate or testify to the truth of who we are and what life is like and what heaven's like and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We can't go beyond the testimony of God. I mean, it, sometimes you'll see people do this. You know, people will say, well, I mean, I would, I would believe in Jesus if only some kind of, you know, if only science would prove to me that Jesus was risen from the dead, that I would believe. If only there was something that science could show me, if, if, if only this person that I really respect, this brilliant PhD Nobel Prize winning person, if that person believed in Jesus, then I would believe also. But don't you see that these are appeals to authorities that you are making higher than God himself? God is not subordinate to those authorities. God is answerable to no one. It says in Romans Three, let God be true, though every man a liar. All other authorities are subject to him. You can't get higher than God. And that's kind of what John is saying here. This, this, is, this is God's testimony about who the Son of God is. And this is how he has chosen to give that testimony. By having Jesus baptized, by his shedding of blood on the cross, and by the Holy Spirit who then guides the apostles to write these things in the New Testament and then testifies in our spirits about the truthfulness of the gospel. I mean, if that's not enough for you, there is, there's, there's no other place for you to go. That's what John is saying. There's no other authority outside that that's going to trump the authority of what John is telling us about. The testimony given to you is sufficient. It's enough because of the authority of the water, blood, and spirit. Well, let's look secondly now at the content of the testimony. What, what, what actually does God say about his son? What does he testify to be true about the son of God? Let's go back to verse 6. I skipped over a, a key phrase there in verse 6. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Nope, excuse me, that's verse 1. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, notice this phrase. He says, not by water only. Not by water only. Apparently, there were some in the church who were teaching. And remember, we've been hearing a lot about the teaching of the false teachers uh, in the church when John was writing. And apparently there were some who were saying, yeah, yeah, we, we accept the baptism of Jesus. We know that he was baptized. We accept that. But what John is concerned about is the idea that Jesus was only baptized. And so he goes on and he says, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. The blood is essential to identifying who Jesus is. 
The fact that he went to the cross and shed his blood there is something we absolutely have to hang on to regarding the testimony about who Jesus is and what he did. Now, remember I've said that probably the, the main uh, false teaching at this time was something called Gnosticism, and that was this idea that physical matter is bad, uh, that the body is, is something that is intrinsically sinful and kind of dirty and can be easily, easily, easily destroyed. And says that we have to declare that Jesus has come in the flesh because the Gnostics were saying there's no way the God could come and take on a filthy, dirty human body. And that was their view. This, Jesus can't be fully human because no God would unite himself to a body. Well, if you can't unite yourself to a body, you can't shed blood, can you? I mean, that's one of the very essential purposes of the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity can take on a human body and then give up that body as a sacrifice of atonement for you and me in shedding blood. But there were apparently people here who were saying, no, we don't accept that. We don't accept that blood is necessary for our salvation. So they were holding on to like a water-only version of Jesus, but what John is saying here is, no, he came by water and the blood. We had this discussion in our Christianity Explored class this past week, just asking the question about, um, uh, you know, why did Jesus come? I mean, it would be a very interesting question to ask the man on the street or the woman on the street, why, why did Jesus come? What, what, what was his intent? Who, who is Jesus? What, what, what's he all about? And a lot of people will say, well, he was a great teacher. He was a great religious leader. A lot of people see him as kind of a, kind of a cosmic therapist. You know, he, he's the one you go to when you feel bad and you feel down. You go to Jesus, he picks you up. He encourages you. Some people see Jesus as a kind of a social justice warrior. You know, he, he's the one. He's out fighting poverty and oppression, and, and that's why he came. And there's some truth to all of these things, and these things are not to be dismissed. But what John is saying here is if we, if we stop there, if we don't go further and say that the whole reason that Jesus came was to shed blood, we miss the entire point of the gospel. You're just missing it. Jesus came to shed blood because only through the shedding of blood can your sins be forgiven and can you have any hope of a relationship with God. It's the only way you can have any confidence that God loves you and accepts you is if he sheds blood for you to pay the penalty for you. And that's what John is saying here, and that's why he's making such a big deal about the blood. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Essential to Jesus' coming, the identity of Jesus, and that's what God is testifying to in this passage. Well, John goes on. It's not just that, but let's skip down to verse 11, and John tells us more about this testimony. Verse 11 says this, this is the testimony. Couldn't be any clearer. This is the testimony. And then he goes on to tell us not something that God has said, but something that God has done. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is the testimony about what Jesus has done. Is he, he gives eternal life to those who come and receive him. That, that is, he gives you life right now so that life is pulsating through your soul because you know why you exist. 
and the Spirit lives in you now, and you have an ability to obey and please Almighty God. You are an agent of the kingdom of God. That's what it is to be alive in this world, (laughs) to know you have a purpose, to know you've been saved, to know God loves you, to know where you're headed and where you're going and what your future's like. And that's what Jesus offers, life right now, but not just life in this life, but life in the life to come also, because the promise of the gospel is that based on the resurrection of Jesus, there is life beyond the grave. For all who trust in him, there is this coming day when Jesus will return and raise us up out of the graves, and we will live forever having overcome the powers of death. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what Jesus offers, eternal life. There's a philosopher that I've told you about. His name is Luke Ferry. He's a uh, philosophy professor at the University of Paris. He's written a book about philosophy. And um, Luke Ferry says in this book at the very beginning, he says that the, the whole reason why there is this kind of discipline of philosophy is because human beings are different than animals in the sense that human beings know their limits. He says, all human beings know that the day is coming when we're going to die. We all know that. I mean, dogs and cats and whales are not concerned about their forthcoming death. You know, they don't ruminate about that and think about it and philosophize about it. But human beings do because we know death is coming, and we don't like it that death is coming. And so here's what Luke Ferry says, and the man's not a Christian. He declares in the book he's not a Christian, but nonetheless, this is what he says. The Christian response to this problem of death is the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. It seems to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory of personal immortality over our condition as mortals. There is no hope for life beyond the grave outside of what Jesus Christ offers. It's the only place life can be found. And so that's why John says in verse 12, look very clearly, end of verse 11 actually, this life is in his son. And then verse 12, whoever has the son has life, but look, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. There is no life outside the son of God. There is no life in science or philosophy. There is no life in conservatism or progressivism. There is no life in Islam or Hinduism. There is only life in Jesus Christ. It's the only place you can find it. But what a blessed truth it is that it's there, that it's offered, right? There is an opportunity for you to live because of what Jesus has done. And this is what God is testifying to you today. This Jesus is the Son of God, and He offers life to you. I mean, how depressing was it to hear this news report? I think it was just this past week, the U.S. government reporting that there's been a 25% increase in suicides since 1999 in our country, and in some places as high as 30%. Just over the course of 20 years, 25 30% increase. Good grief, what's that? It's like a wasp on my hand. I, I don't like wasps. And, and bees. I, I, <laughs> okay, well, if he comes back after me, let me know because I might have to 
take off. Oh, there he is down there. Somebody's killing him for me. That wasp does not have life. He's... <laughs> How weird. Oh. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah's rescued me. Okay. Sorry for the... Was that a wasp? Do you think it was a wasp? Uh, that's what I thought. <laughs> okay. Where was I? All right, let's... Um, yeah, what, a, what an awkward time for that to happen as I'm talking about an increase in suicides. Um, well, sorry for the interruption. There is this report, 25% increase in suicides. I, I mean, just to think of, you know, people preferring death to life. And, and I know there's a lot of things that can go into suicide and the reasons people do it. Sometimes there's mental health issues going on. I, I understand that. But, um, you know, what, what a contrast that is to what we're reading here, that, that in Jesus there is, there is life, that there is the possibility of having life. Friends, if... If you have thought about suicide, if you're feeling suicidal today, if you, particularly if you've like set forth a plan, you know, you're thinking about suicide and, and you've already got a way in mind how you're going to do it, I, I would just plead with you, would you please tell somebody about that? Would you, would you tell me about that? Would you let us as a church come alongside you and help you and walk with you? I mean, taking your own life is, is not the answer, particularly when we have a Savior who lives and who wants you to live forever. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are laboring, carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest, and, and he will do that. So that's the content of the testimony. There is this Son of God who has come. He's, he's laid down his life, shed blood, and because of his resurrection from the dead, and because he lives now, he offers life to you. And then there's one last thing to consider, and that is this, the response to the testimony. That's, that's always the case. In, in, a, in a trial, when the jury hears the testimony, the jury has to respond with either guilt, uh, a guilty verdict, or a not guilty verdict. Now, for you, um, the response is one of two things, not guilty or not guilty, but belief or unbelief. Those are the two options. Uh, look at this in verse um, 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you believe, you, you have trusted Christ, that means the testimony that God has been giving about his son is internalized. It's, it's in your soul. It's part of you somehow. It makes up who you are. But John goes on at the rest of verse 10, and he says there, there is another option. Whoever does not believe, he says, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God has given testimony about Jesus, and those who disbelieve it, I mean, look what he's saying here. This is a very serious charge. He's saying those who disbelieve it are making God out to be a liar. 
If you think of God as a witness or a testifier, if someone gets up on the stand and testifies and you don't believe it, I guess the person could be wrong, but what John is saying is in this case, it's because you think God is lying to you. But if you think God is telling the truth, there's only one option, that is you believe. (laughs) But if you don't believe, you're calling God a liar. John Stott says, says this, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it's a sin to be deplored. I mean, sometimes people talk about unbelief as kind of a badge of honor. They're the ones who are, you know, thinking a little more carefully about everyone, about it more than anybody else. These are the people who are the real serious, authentic, true thinkers, and, and they think there's something, you know, really admirable about the fact that they're such skeptics about everything. John says you don't believe in what God has said to be true about Jesus makes you a declarer that God is a liar. And according to John Stott, a sin to be deplored. So what is your response to this, friends? What is your response to the testimony of God about his son? Is it belief or is it unbelief? Maybe your unbelief is based on the demand that you have. You want more proof. You want more evidence. You want more testimony. You want something miraculous. You want something more powerful. It's just what you read in the Bible and what people say about Jesus is not enough. You want something more. You want something really fantastic to happen because if that happens, then you'll believe. Well, let me close just by telling you this story. This comes from Luke 16, a story that Jesus told. There was a rich man and a poor man. They both died. Poor man, <coughs> poor man went to heaven. Rich man went to hell. The rich man in hell is tormented in hell, and he's able to speak with Abraham, it says in the story. He's speaking to heaven, and he says, oh, I've got these brothers, and my brothers, they don't believe, and I don't want them to come to this place, and so can you please send that poor man in heaven, can you please send him to go talk to my brothers and tell them about this place and about Jesus, because if my brothers hear someone who's risen from the dead talking to them, certainly they'll believe. Certainly they'll be convinced a resurrected person, who would disbelieve him? But don't we have a resurrected person in Jesus Christ who has been testifying about who he is, and yet people don't believe? The story goes on, and what Abraham says from heaven, he says this, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to send a resurrected person to testify to your brothers. They have Moses and the prophets, and that's enough. They will not be convinced, even if someone goes to them risen from the dead. That won't do it. The testimony already born about who Jesus is in the scriptures is enough. I mean, that's astounding, isn't it? I mean, that's hard to believe, quite frankly. I just feel like I'd probably believe if someone was risen from the dead. But our hearts are hard. They are naturally hard and doubtful and skeptical. And what Jesus means to communicate in that passage is that the testimony already born is enough. It's a testimony worth believing. And that's what John is telling us here in 1 John 5. So we're going to pray and get ready to come and take the Lord's Supper. So... Let's give God thanks for his word. God, we thank you so much that you have testified clearly and persuasively and convincingly 
about the person of your son. And thank you for his shed blood for us, his resurrected life for us as well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.